0: Hey guys, welcome to another video lecture from my dining room. It is day 35 on the count up. So uh, I'm gonna jump right in and talk about economic liberalism. Now, our another member of our family of liberal ideas. Pretty straightforwardly, economic liberalism is limited government, Lockean style, plus capitalism. Uh, the free market, free exchange is the economic adjunct to limited government that makes economic liberalism kind of uh, its own particular family of ideas. Now one of the things that we're going to see today is that uh, there are different versions of economic liberalism that accept the same basic sort of premises and analysis but uh, have variations on what it is that the government should be doing in its limited role. Uh, I want to get a running start into this, because this is kind of today's rounding out uh, a few weeks of looking at different angles on classic liberalism. Next time, we're going to look at liberal internationalism, which is really it's a it's a cousin. It's less of a you know it's more of a distant cousin to the forms of liberalism that we've been looking at: liberal individualism, political liberalism, and now economic liberalism. Uh, so I want to I want to get a running start into today by kind of reviewing where we've been. Um, One of the things that is a central question for liberal thinkers across the board is, uh, what are the threats to the exercise of individual sovereignty? And the set of threats that different liberal thinkers have identified uh, shows what they focus on and the solution to that threat and the elevating of a particular threat to sort of top threat is one of the things that creates different versions of liberalism so uh, the first threat to the exercise of individual sovereignty uh, and it's not necessarily the first historically or even the first uh, um, uh, chronologically uh, though it does come from Locke so he is you know the, the sort of the originator of, of this line of thinking um, but the first threat is anarchy. anarchy as in, lack of rules that are defined and uh, enforced. Uh, and this is essentially, you can think of this as the state of nature. That's what the state of nature is it is a situation of anarchy, literally, rulelessness, not chaos, as is often. Uh, um, kind of, the the word anarchy is often used for chaos or it's often used for sort of revolutionary upheaval. There are uh, all kinds of uses of the word anarchy that that are not this sort of strict technical one. Not to say that they're wrong, but when I say uh, anarchy in this context, I'm talking about the technical rulelessness. Um, So uh, I have some notes here today, I'm gonna refer to it. Uh, How do we deal with the threat of anarchy? And the threat is a result of the fact that there's no power. I'm gonna put up here in this column, power model. Anarchy is a threat to the exercise of individual sovereignty. I'll put that up here. Threats to exercise of individual sovereignty. Anarchy is a threat because uh, in the absence of any power whatsoever, All there is is individuals uh, attempting to exercise their sovereignty and running into conflicts that uh, they can't necessarily solve to their satisfaction. Some people are going to win, some people are going to lose, no one's going to win all the time. And so uh, what we need here is an institution of government. The solution to this is an institution of government that will define the limits of individual sovereignty and enforce those limits in order to make sure that everybody has a more or less equal share of space to exercise their individual sovereignty. Uh, Because totally unlimited liberty is meaningless. If everybody has unlimited liberty, then nobody really has any kind of security in enjoying that liberty because other people's actions could take it away. Uh, I've said that numerous numerous times in this class already, and I'll probably say it numerous more times because it's a really important feature of the entire liberal view, is that liberty can be maximized but it cannot be made absolute. It cannot be made into uh, an unlimited thing. It can be made as large as possible, but it needs to be made large uh, um, equally for everybody by limiting it to a certain extent. What this does is this creates our next threat. Our next threat is government. And the reason why government is a threat is because now instead of no power, we now have hard power. Hard power is basically direct force, um, as well as the threat of force. uh, And the threat of force is backed up with the ability to actually apply direct force. Um, So, uh, the hard power is created, uh, and this is, we're still really kind of just following the Lockean path here. Hard power is created in order to enforce and uh, um, define and enforce our rights and to make them meaningful. But the government itself becomes a new threat and uh, how do you deal with this particular threat, right? The way you deal with the threat of anarchy is you go to government, okay? Um, The way that you deal with the threat of government is you have checks and balances. And you have both internal and external. Internal is the separation of powers and external is democracy, otherwise known as popular sovereignty. Uh, the idea is that the government has a limited role. Okay, and this is where limited government comes in. Limited role. In order not to be, a th- to solve one threat by creating uh, an even worse threat, first of all, government has to be limited to the job of defining and enforcing rights, and second of all, there have to be some checks that make that into reality. Um, A a third threat that doesn't necessarily follow from this, right? Anarchy and government are related as threats. The state of nature is a threat because uh, there's nothing to enforce our rights. The government solves that problem, but it then itself becomes a threat. A third threat is society. And we can think of this as soft power. Influence that is strong enough to get people to do things, not because it, because they're being physically forced, or because... Hang on. I did, I just had one of those moments of like, did I play? Press record, and then in an hour and a half, I go around to the other side, and I see, I'm like, oh shit. So it's playing, there it is. Um, soft power in the sense that uh, you're not being... Physically forced, or you're not doing it because you're afraid of the threat of force. Um, the influence can be just as powerful. And this is one of this is this is Mill's kind of uh, addition to classic liberalism: is that it's not just that the state of nature is a problem, and it's not just that the government is a, is a, is a, both a help and a threat. Those are true. Mill accepts those, but s- society is also a threat because the influence, the set of expectations. Uh, tradition and conformity and uh, the ability of people to make other people uncomfortable enough that they don't want to actually exercise their individual sovereignty to essentially get them to self-conform uh, is very powerful. And uh, it's extremely important to acknowledge that uh, lack of institutions, uh, excuse me, that even without an institution, there can be a direct threat to our ability to decide for ourselves what we're gonna aim our lives towards, our conception of the good, and how we're gonna live our lives trying to get uh, to that good, uh, trying, to, trying to achieve that conception of the good. Um, the problem here is that uh, how do we overcome this? Right? What, what, create, or what pushes back against this threat? Um, essentially, what we have here is tolerance for eccentricity, Um, and actually, I would say that going beyond tolerance, Mill actually recommends um, appreciation for eccentricity. Now, uh, I'm going to pause here for just a minute and note something that's coming in the class, which is my sample speech. Uh, You guys have a speech that's due in a week, and I'm, I'm thinking about actually extending that deadline. Uh, because uh, the sample speech that I promised, which was supposed to land a week ahead of when your, sam- of when your speech is due, is, I'm, I'm working on it today, and I'm not sure I'm going to actually have it done today, Thursday, uh, it may come on Friday, but my speech is going to be on eccentricity. You you have to pick a quote from the readings, any of the readings so far, and I've picked a quote from Mill, and I'm just telling you don't pick a quote from Mill on eccentricity, but I'm going to uh, talk about this, but just to kind of anticipate my speech, and also to repeat something that I, that I mentioned last time when talking about Mill, is that uh, the way to make sure that societal pressure, social tyranny, as opposed to political tyranny, um, tyranny the majority in both cases, right? If, if the government tyrannizes you, it's probably, it, possibly in a democratic system because of the majority, possibly with the minority, but when society tyrannizes you, it really is kind of the tyranny of majority, the tyranny of conformity. Mill points out that this is also uh, a problem for the exercise of... Uh, Uh, individual sovereignty. Um, The solution is not government. The solution is not limited government or any kind of institution. The solution is essentially an attitude or disposition, right? So it's a dispositional solution. Anarchy is handled institutionally. The threat of government is handled institutionally, through separation of powers as well as through institutions of democracy. social pressure is handled through attitudes and the idea that in society in a liberal society um, we actually uh, to- have to you know cultivate a, a toleration for and then really uh, you know more than just a toleration for an appreciation for eccentricity, diversity, different experiments with living um, to get all of those benefits that Mill's talking about and to really, not only uh, allow other people to exercise their individual sovereignty, to make sure that we ourselves are not being tyrannized by conformity and tradition and social pressure. Uh, because if it weren't for eccentrics who show us that there are different ways to live, uh, and eccentrics like don't think of necessarily somebody you know in a smoking jacket with a monocle and a mohawk and like that's one way of being eccentric. But an eccentric is just somebody who chooses to live their life outside of the standard model available in the dominant culture if it weren't for eccentrics in this sense and it's a broad class of uh people um people walking around the world pursuing a conception of the good and making choices uh to what means get them there aren't really exercising the full range of individual sovereignty because their conception of the good is probably just borrowed from the dominant culture, borrowed from their upbringing, borrowed from uh, uh, the only small set of models or singular model they've been shown uh, in their life. So uh, it, takes, it takes these people, so essentially the solution to so- societal soft power as a threat to our individual sovereignty is eccentricity and then of course rationality, like they're both expressive and in- instrumental, but mostly expressive to be able to say, oh, here are people living differently I'm going to consider these different models of the good life, these different conceptions of the good. And then again, as I said last time, uh, even if you land back on the one that you were born into and is the dominant culture, uh, from Mill's point of view, it's better because what you now know is you now know why you accept that conception of the good. It's actually your choice. It started off as given to you and laid on top of you. And then it becomes your choice. But what's really going to happen in a lot of cases is that you're going to make a different choice. You're going to have you're going to you're going to adjust your conception of the good, even if not radically. You're going to transform it just a little bit. You're going to essentially mix your individuality with your own with the conception of the good that was given to you and create the thing that is actually you. And then and then of course it can be an ongoing process. Once you actually evaluate your conception of the good and either transform it or re up the one that you were given with, that becomes a lifelong process of uh, both uh, exerting your expressive rationality and using your instrumental rationality. Uh, Up to this point, we've kind of got the classic model of liberalism. We have a limited government, we have a tolerant, uh, diverse society, uh, and that is what kind of, we could call that liberalism 1.0. Economic liberalism is actually like liberalism 1.0. It's it's not exactly a a brand new 2.0, but it's not exactly like uh, the classical one. Um, And because what it does, it combines these conceptions, right? Limited government and we could call it limited society, right? Tolerant society uh, with capitalism. The first liberal thinkers were writing in a world where there wasn't a capitalist system. And then even the earlier ones like, like Mill, there's capitalism, but it's really a very kind of, it's a larval Uh, It's a larval system. So economic liberalism sees, uh, really takes advantage of some more historical development, some economic development. But there's now also a third threat, excuse me, a fourth threat that economic liberals are really addressing very directly. uh, And that threat is socialism. And socialism as an idea actually doesn't originate with Marx. Uh, it's, It's much older than that. But even in the modern form, uh, the late 18th century, and then particularly the early 19th century, uh, uh, there emerge a number of socialist thinkers. They're usually utopian thinkers, uh, and often they were actually the architects of of small utopian communities, like Robert Owens, uh, who formed uh, a utopian socialist community. Marx himself calls himself a scientific socialist because he wants to put the socialist ideal on a scientific basis. We'll talk plenty about Marx in the second half of the class, so I won't say anything more about him there. But the idea of socialism, that society is not uh, oriented simply towards protecting individual liberty, but that there are social goals that are worth pursuing that actually are both desirable to society and are necessary for the full flourishing of the individual, socialism arises as a kind of an early counter discourse to the liberal discourse. And actually also at the very same time, conservatism arises as a counter discourse. Liberalism gives rise to counter discourses from either side of what we now think of as the political spectrum. Um, Conservatism arises as a way of saying, oh wait a minute, tradition, conformity, Uh, um, uh, adherence to precedent, stability, these are all necessary uh, to society. So essentially saying no, this soft power is the right kind of power uh, to have. Socialism is uh, a way of saying that society needs to go beyond simply trying to protect the exercise of individual sovereignty. Um, And the Socialist discourse is one where it really also arises as capitalism is getting going and as these early socialist thinkers can look at what capitalism is already doing to people and uh, they hadn't seen anything yet, even Marx hadn't seen anything yet uh, in terms of of capitalism's uh, productivity as well as its propensity to create vast uh, inequality, but also uh, um, to uh, increase the average standard of living. They really, they, early socialist thinkers kind of knew what capitalism could do, but they just hadn't even seen the tremendous uh, power as well as the tr- tr- tremendous amount of destruction that it could wield. Um, the problem with socialism is that uh, it is actually super hard power. And what it is, is it's a totalitarian power. Or at least in the hands of economic liberals, socialism is seen as uh, having a propensity towards essentially combining hard and soft power. It's a government that has the force, and then it's uh, the government is putting into place society's uh, demands for equality uh, for a rational distribution of uh, goods, for a lack of competition, uh, for material equality as opposed to just political equality. And combining hard and soft power uh, is, from the point of view of economic liberals, is particularly dangerous. Um, And uh, I'm gonna uh, point out that for every different kind of liberal, there's a, I think I said this already, there's a threat that is their primary threat. Um, for Locke, anarchy is the primary threat. And then he doesn't really write a whole lot about checking government. He just says limited, uh, limited uh, role for government, limited government is the solution. Um, somebody like uh, um, Rawls uh, is going to be talking more about this, but really like Montesquieu and Madison are really kind of the architects of the checks to make sure that the limited role that they want government to have as good Lockeans is actually adhered to. Uh, this is, you know, Mill is saying, oh no, no, you know what? The government is potentially a threat, but really, it's covering over, or there's a hidden threat that we're not even seeing, and that hidden threat is uh, society and social expectations, and particularly conformity. Economic liberals say those things pale in comparison to socialism, which is central planning of the economy. definitely need to be using my notes here more than usual. Uh, Let's see. Socialism. When the power of society and the government combine to pursue social goals beyond the preservation of individual rights, liberty is even more threatened than ever. Um, And so this, for economic liberals, is the top threat. I'm going to put stars around it because we are, after all, talking about economic liberalism uh, in this class. Uh, This... To go back to the sort of power model, this is hard power, and it really what it is, is it's public power. This is soft power, and what it really is, is private power. And what socialism is, totalitarian power, is a combination of public and private power. It's basically taking private power and handing it over to the public sphere. Um, economic liberals are apt to, to see the government as the biggest potential threat to our liberty. And not just any government, but a central planning government. Economic liberals really are, as I say, limited government. This is their thing. They're they're good Lockeans in the sense that the real solution, not just to anarchy, but to its sort of the extreme opposite, which is socialism, is limited government. so, the government is supposed to define and enforce rights only, okay? So, the solution, this is, central planning is the threat, and the solution to this is limited government. The big thing that makes economic liberals sort of a development unlock is that, one, They see capitalism, and they're saying, oh, hey, one of the things that pushes back against central planning is capitalism, and so the solution is limited government, and the rights are going to be both political and economic rights. Now, Locke, of course, talks about property rights, um, but in a different way than economic liberals, because he's talking about it in a a pre-capitalist place where, essentially, he sees Our ownership of things as mixing our labor with uh, the uh, um, raw universe and then we sort of bring that stuff as an adjunct onto our own bodies and then uh, our property essentially becomes an extension of our bodies uh, and so it is now one of our fundamental rights. The economic liberals are actually looking systemically and they're saying the reason why economic rights are important is not just because property rights are part of our kind of fundamental liberty, it's because economic rights secure individuals against the big danger of central planning. The government, once it's created, it's a threat to our rights, and then it also becomes a, a tool that society can use to advance other goals. That's why it's a combination of hard power and soft power. Um, and then they combine to become this thing where, okay, here we have this... Uh, this all this force concentrated in the government, and uh, it is, even if it's democratic, it can be captured by a majority that says, hey, you know, we want to move towards less competition, we want to move towards less inequality, we want to move towards a high level of economic security, we want to move towards, uh, you know, some kind of social conformism. There's a lot of things that can be done with the government. Uh, that's why the, the sort of economic liberals are re-upping on the whole notion of limited government, but it's a development because Locke didn't really talk about economic rights as free exchange and a capitalist system where the accumulation of capital is one one of the fundamental economic rights. So economic rights are essentially free exchange and unlimited accumulation. Now, one of the things that is uh, a difference among different economic liberals is what does it take to make sure that these economic rights are actually uh, held by people and exercised by people, and unlimited accumulation is not as problematic. basically what you in order to uh, um, have that, you just have to have a a well-defined system of property rights and ownership and ownership transfer. And that's relatively unproblematic. Um, Free exchange is more problematic because in order to make sure that people are making free exchanges, there are certain conditions that are required because there are a lot of ways in which an exchange that looks free on the surface is not free. Um, and one of the things that differentiates different economic liberals is uh, how uh, big of a list that is and how much government uh, effort and activity it takes to make sure that those conditions are met. Okay. So, free exchange uh, requires there are certain conditions to do that, and then the question is what are they? And how extensive. Are we going to have government action to make sure those conditions are met? So, the government has the same type of role in uh, the economic liberal view as in the political liberal view, the the, the classic Lockean view. Um, But the debate shifts, or I shouldn't say shifts, there's an added debate which is, okay, free exchange is central. And Locke doesn't really talk about free exchange, he he mentions it, but it's really not central to his, his thinking. Free exchange. This is the real thing, right? Socialism is the real problem. Central planning is the real problem, um, and uh, free exchange is essentially the opposite of central planning. Letting a decentralized system of economic, uh, for you know, planning, planning with air quotes, uh, because free exchange is not a type of a plan. It is uh, an outcome that uh, has unintended consequences that result from us all the sets of individual. Uh, choices that people make when they freely exchange. Uh, But the question now is, okay, well that's that's a fundamental economic right and it's essential to the exercise of individual sovereignty. The government telling you what you can and can't exchange and how and what conditions is a fundamental threat to our individual sovereignty. Um, and uh, uh, Milton Friedman, in his in the reading for today, where is it? I have it down here somewhere. "Capitalism and Freedom." He gives us a number of different examples in the very first couple pages uh, that tell us, you know, show us how it is that government, even sort of very familiar types of uh, regulations, are actually uh, fundamentally, you know, taking away our right to. Uh, decide what we're going to do with our bodies, like individual sovereignty, a big part of that is our, our, our money and our goods, and when we don't have the ability to exchange those freely, then the government has attenuated our uh, individual sovereignty, not in the name of protecting it, but in the name of pursuing some other kind of goal, whether it be economic Uh, equality, or whether it be economic stability, or whether it be some kind of, uh, you know, uh, social good that's being taxed to, uh, that people are being taxed in order to pay for, like, you know, uh, clean beaches, or whatever it happens to be, or not clean beaches, but public beaches, Uh, any of those things are going to impugn our free exchange. But there are also conditions. If people are forcing you to make exchanges, that's not free. That's a mugging. is Clearly on a free exchange, but there are lots of things that have the impact of a mugging that don't necessarily have the exact physical structure of a mugging. So if somebody misleads us into thinking that the thing they're exchanging uh, is better than it is, that attenuates our uh, free exchange as well. Economic liberals are happy to accept government action that ensures free exchange. They're happy to accept government action that protects accu- uh, unlimited accumulation. Uh, that, that make sure that uh, transfers of wealth uh, from one generation to the next or to whoever people want to transfer their wealth to um, happens without interference. Uh, and a big part of that, unlimited accumulation, is avoiding things like uh, an estate tax, um, any kind of taxation on wealth that gets passed on. So there are, there are definitely things that economic liberals see as impugning these economic rights. Um, economic rights are not seen fundamentally as separate from political rights. Political and economic rights are seen as both, one, ends in themselves, uh, things that are just part of us as rights holders, right? We have a right to exchange freely. It's part of part of our uh, control over ourselves. It's control over the things that we have. They're also seen as a means to an end to make sure that people actually have the ability to exercise their individual sovereignty without being told what to do. Um, so, but free exchange, what will protect that? How much government action? is going to be required so uh economic liberals will vary here in terms of how extensive is government action to protect our freedom of exchange but they will never disagree on whether or not the government can go beyond these basic tasks of defining and enforcing our rights different economic liberals will see definitions different they'll see the list of conditions differently, but they will never say, well, there are exceptions to the limited role of the government. The, the government must always be limited to the role of defining and enforcing our rights. And the enforcing part, of course, means that making sure that the conditions, are not just preventing people from stealing from us, but making sure that the conditions for free exchange uh, exist. So what economic liberals are actually asking for is that our political debates within a democratic, limited government, our political debates are always debates about means to this end. That we don't debate, are there social goods that we wanna collectively pursue? We don't debate, are there social conditions that we want to ameliorate? We don't debate, is there some kind of overall common good that we're going to move towards, and people who don't like it, we're going to force them to. All of these things are forms of central planning, right? Um, Central planning does have a kind of a specific narrow technical meaning of the government, you know, deciding on the distribution and allocation of resources, productive resources in society, and for sure economic liberals do not want to see the government doing that. Um, And the reason they don't want to see the government doing that is because it leads to tyranny. And Part of what the critique is, is that as soon as you allow the government to start doing more than just protecting rights, it's going to be traveling the road to serfdom in Hayek's case, uh, or in his his term, or really what it's doing is it's, it's moving towards a greater and greater centralization of political power, which is always going to move against individual sovereignty. So it could be slow, but when you allow the government to go beyond the boundaries Uh, of protect of defining and protecting rights, you're uh, essentially, it's a slippery slope to some form of tyranny. And that's a a common theme in all the readings that I gave you for today, which is the three different readings, uh, but also in all the economic liberals, is that there's a slippery slope here. You might want, it's very tempting for us to want to take this new tool and not just use it for its original intention, which is to define and protect rights, but to use it for other intentions. And using that tool outside of this domain for something new is the thing that is considered most dangerous. So if there's something, some sort of one thing that you want to say, well, what are, what is economic, what are economic liberals, uh, and you know, what is their primary concern? It's that the government is potentially a tool that could be massively abused, and of course, early over here, it's like, okay, government is a threat. They're they're just saying, yeah, here's exactly why it's a threat. The probably the biggest threat that the government will be go beyond the bounds of its legitimately limited role is that it will get involved in economic planning. It'll get involved in pursuing economic goals that a lot of people are going to want, but that are not that are not legitimate. Uh, just because people want things. Doesn't mean that it respects individual uh, everybody's individual sovereignty. That's actually one of the things that you know Mill points out. So, social uh, tyranny isn't necessarily a bunch of evil-minded people like I'm going to manipulate you into living your life the way I want you to live it. It's people who, who just have these strong expectations that there's a right way to do things, and people who depart from that are you know uh, punished not necessarily with force or the threat of force, but are punished with social censure, are punished with being criticized, are punished with being sort of outcasts. Um, the mill sees that you don't even need a government institution for uh society to begin abusing the power that is uh, that is eminent in it so economic liberals are just looking straight at, at central planning but it's in itself is a stand-in for any kind of major project that the government want, might want to undertake it's a democratic government and it could be want to undertake that because the majority of people say hey We want there to be a a high level of economic uh, security. We want there to be a tiny level or low level or nothing of inequality. Um, We want to make sure that uh, the fruits of our societal production are distributed as widely and evenly as possible. These are all goals that could be advanced in a democratic society, but they burst out of the bounds of the uh, limited role that all liberals see that government should have. Essentially, economic liberals are then saying, in a democratic society, we have to have internal checks, that helps, we have to have the external checks of the people, but the people themselves are dangerous, and so what we have to also then have is we have to have a kind of a philosophical check, which is the expectation that the political discourse in a liberal democratic society is gonna always center around answering the question, what is necessary to secure our rights, whatever they be, particularly our right to free exchange. And as soon as we begin debating other questions, that has to be reeled in, right? We can't allow uh, the democratic discourse to become, well, what other goals do we want to pursue? What kind of society do we want to shape? What do we want people to be like? What conception of the good are we as a society or we as a nation moving towards? All of these questions are tempting, and that's what socialists are asking these questions. Conservatives are asking these questions. All of the critics of liberalism are asking other questions. Uh, and the economic liberals are saying, no, we need to focus specifically on what are these, uh, what 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 are the ways in which we can do the defining and the protecting of individual rights. Now there will be variations uh, within um, within economic liberalism, and there are we have between. Here I have my thing, (laughs) not that this helps any, but I'll wave these around. Between Friedman and Hayek, there's one great example of uh, a difference between two thinkers who are very clearly committed to the economic liberal project, who are both very directly critical of socialism and the totalitarianism that they see resulting from it. Uh, Friedman and Hayek agree about a lot of things, and one of the things I want to point out that they agree on is that capitalism and central planning are essentially the two options that exist, and I think I have a quote from Friedman here, uh, if I can find it pretty quickly. Um, Fundamentally, this is on page 19 of the reading, fundamentally there are only two ways of coordinating the economic activities of millions. One is central direction involving the use of coercion, the technique of the army and of the modern totalitarian state. The other is voluntary cooperation of individuals, the technique of the marketplace. So essentially, there's central planning and there's a decentralized free market capitalist system. And Hayek accepts, he doesn't say it as plainly as Friedman does, but he accepts that basically there are two ways of going about making economic decisions for a large society. One is a decentralized market, and the other one is a central planning through via the government. Both of them agree that this; these are the two choices, and it's a dichotomy that in both of their minds clearly favors capitalism. Right? Now, I will note that I think that there are other approaches to the problem of how to organize an economy than these two uh, um, diametrically opposed viewpoints, and I think that in a way, this commits—they both, both Friedman and Hayek, commit a, a kind of a, a, a standard logical flaw, which is a false dichotomy. Right? If uh, you reject central planning, you have to accept capitalism. Um, there's a way of saying that we're not going to centrally plan the entire economy, but we're also not going to then just have free exchange and unlimited accumulation that there is going to be a place in between where there are attenuated property rights, that the wealth of society can be distributed by the government in a way that achieves uh, uh, certain goals, but that the entire economy is not centrally planned. Now, I will say that, that, that I believe that both Friedman and particularly Hayek would address that claim by saying that what in human history happens and the natural tendency is that as soon as the government begins doing more than just defining and protecting rights, as soon as you allow there to be a domain for uh, societal action, as soon as you allow the common good of any version to enter the political discourse, and you and you allow the political discourse to burst the bounds of debate over what are the conditions to make sure we have rights, what others' rights, <clears throat> what are the fundamental resources that are needed for people to exercise individual sovereignty. Once we have a political discourse that allows other essentially thematics to enter, besides just the rights debate, the, the the debate that centers around well, what does define the harm principle and what government actions are necessary to make sure that people's exchanges are free. As soon as we introduce that, that political power has a tendency to accumulate and to move in the direction of totalitarianism. That's why Hayek's uh, title for his uh, essay is The Road to Serfdom. It's that road is kind of another way of talking about the slippery slope, because his road is essentially a slippery slope. And their critique is that government power is always fundamentally threatening, um, and that as soon as you set up a government, you've created a danger, and you have to do everything you can. You have to be as vigilant as possible to make sure that that potential danger doesn't turn into a real danger. Um, and you know, some, some of the things they say about the sort of built-in dynamics of the accumulation of political power make an awful lot of sense. Um, and that uh, you know, as soon as you say, well, we're going to centrally plan the economy so that People can have enough resources where everybody doesn't have to worry, and they can actually exercise their individual sovereignty uh, for real because they're free of worry, and they're free of want, and they're free of suffering uh, and deprivation. But as soon as you do that, that does open the door to people who are going to be in positions of centrally planning to say, "Well, if we're going to centrally plan the economy, we can also essentially centrally plan the culture, and we can also essentially centrally plan, uh, you know, people's notions about what it means to be." To live a good life, uh, and that it's very tempting to do so. Uh, and that also the political dynamics of a, a very powerful government, that's a centrally planned government, has to be very large, is that when you create these tools of power, people are going to use them for their own ends. Uh, and whether that's the majority of, say, struggling workers, or whether it's a minority of uh, you know, socialist technocrats, whoever it happens to be. When those tools of power are, are put on the table, it's going to be tempting to use them, and as soon as people start using them, they're going to to use them more and more, and what's going to be left in the dust is actually individual sovereignty. And as a number of the writers that we've seen in this class already have said, they will continue to speak the language of liberty. They will use the word liberty. They will use terms like uh, freedom and sovereignty and individualism, but they will bend their meanings in a way that essentially distorts... The core of what individual sovereignty is, which is that the individual person gets to decide on their conception of the good and decide the means to pursue that conception of the good, the means to the end. Um, The most important thing is the getting to decide your own conception of the good. Totalitarianism is society or the government or some elite or some uh, singular strong leader who decides what everyone's conception of the good is and that Uh, this tremendously powerful institution will be used to bend society in that particular direction. So, there is a, I think there's a false dichotomy-like thinking in the economic liberals that there's central planning and there's capitalism and central planning is terrible and so capitalism at, you know, at worst or at minimum is a necessary evil, um, even if it's not super positive, even if it brings with it costs like uh, inequality and suffering and deprivation and toil, um, and kind of some people having the greater resources to exercise their individual sovereignty than others, the alternative is even worse, right? Capitalism does make it difficult for some people to exercise their liberty in the fullest possible way, but central planning makes it impossible for people to exercise their individual sovereignty, um, and that the totalitarian pull, the gravity of uh, um, totalitarianism, once you step outside this bounds of a limited government, is something that is to be guarded against. And so, much like uh, you know, many liberal thinkers, there are trade-offs uh, and there is an acknowledgement that this is not a perfect system. It's not a utopia. A liberal society is not a utopia. A limited government with a capitalist system of free exchange and unlimited accumulation is going to have downsides to it. Right. One of the biggest downsides is that People through free exchange make bad choices and they will therefore suffer and be worse off than they would otherwise be. But uh, if we wanted to correct that, if we want to prevent human suffering, if we want to stop people from making bad decisions, then that's paternalism, uh, which is on its way to totalitarianism, uh, which means that for the sake of protecting some people from making bad decisions, we're essentially trading everybody's... uh, uh, personal freedom to decide how they're going to live their lives. So, and that's a, from the, from this point of view, that's a, that is a clearly beneficial trade-off. Like we give up everybody having a satisfying life for most people having the ability to determine how their lives go. And are are there, are there uh, victims? Are there casualties? Uh, Are there people who suffer and have deprivation and don't have as much of individual sovereignty uh, as others? The answer is yes, but we have to accept that because the alternative choice is to give away all of our freedom. And maybe not all at once, right? But gradually the totalitarian pull is going to eventually win out uh, over any kind of protected individual liberty. So economic liberals kind of see themselves as guardians of this really important boundary of limited government. That the government's job is just to protect our rights by first defining them and then by enforcing them. Now, uh, as I say, though, there will be differences within economic liberals, and I, th- and I think that the readings with uh, Hayek and Friedman show very clearly one of those differences. It's actually a pretty meaningful difference, and that's the question of social insurance. Friedman spends a significant amount of time in the reading that I gave you towards the end uh, essentially critiquing social insurance schemes, most specifically uh, the um, Social Security uh, Administration uh, in the United States, or the, the Social Security Act. Uh, whereas Hayek, even as he acknowledges that, uh, you know, saying that we have to have um, you know, central planning is a t- or we have to have a centrally planned economy to benefit everybody. That's a slippery slope to totalitarianism. He does say, um, and I'm going to read a, a pretty extensive quote. This is on pages 66 and 67 of the Hayek, um, under the heading Two kinds of security." <clears throat> like the spurious quote, "economic freedom and with more justice, economic security is often represented as an indispensable condition of real liberty." In a sense, this is both true and important, right? He's acknowledging essentially what I what I called positive liberty uh, back in week one. Um, Independence of mind or strength of character is rarely found among those who cannot be confident that they will make their way by their own effort. So there's something that's needed. There's some kind of economic security that's needed to actually have, the, in his view, the strength of character and independence of mind that characterizes a liberal individual. But there are two kinds of security. The certainty of a given minimum sustenance for all and the security of a given standard of life, of the relative position which one person or group enjoys compared to others. There is no reason why, in a society which has reached the general level of wealth ours has, the first kind of security should not be guaranteed to all without endangering general freedom. That is, some minimum of food, shelter, and clothing sufficient to preserve health. Nor is there any reason why the state should not help to organize a comprehensive system of social insurance in providing for those common hazards of life against which few can make adequate provision. Right? So, he's saying that the there are two kinds of security. One... Uh, minimum sustenance, and then two, a given standard of living. And that the minimum sustenance is actually a legitimate uh, uh, activity for a limited government that, it, that adheres to the idea that political and economic rights, protecting political and economic rights, is the main thing. He's acknowledging some basic component of resource, some basic side of positive liberty uh, is needed. Friedman is against this notion. Right? Even this basic uh, sort of security of a social security scheme, to him, is the government going too far. Uh, and so we can see two different very committed economic liberals who have the same critique of socialism, who have the same worry about government as the primary threat, who have the same goal of maintaining uh, limited government and a capitalist system, have a different perspective on Social Security and have a different perspective on things like the minimum basic income, right? Like this, neither of these guys is talking about that because it's not really a a, a predominant idea when they're writing. Minimum basic income is now actually coming to the fore as a really, uh, as a a potential policy, particularly uh, with governments trying to do whatever they can right now in the uh, sort of pandemic recession that's coming to make sure that the economy doesn't just tank. Minimum basic income seems like a decent way of providing that kind of security, right? So Hayek on page 66 and 67 is saying, the government can engage in, essentially this not central planning, but the provision of certain kinds of resources to make sure people actually have the ability to make choices for themselves. Some minimum set of resources. Health, physical security, some kind of basic financial uh, Security is going to be necessary. Friedman, no. And so economic liberals are not all dedicated to a very libertarian version of limited government and uh, capitalism. And again, what does it take to protect free exchange? There could be a very extensive set of government actions. Food labeling requirements, regulations on workplace safety, uh, all kinds of stuff that is required to make sure that the, when people do actually make exchanges, that they are in fact free, and that some people aren't making exchanges basically out of necessity, out of fear, out of lack of resources, out of misinformation, um, out of any of the variety of things that someone else can do to you to make you engage in an exchange that ultimately doesn't really come from your instrumental rationality. It comes from some kind of uh, fraud, fear, or force of some kind. So there's the potential for extensive government action to do this job right Um, but what there still is is there is still a well-defined limited domain so when you're arguing about policies you're always going to be again referring back to does that promote free exchange does it protect individual sovereignty does it police the harm principle does it make sure that people's economic Uh, rights are not limited, some people's rights are limited more than others, that everybody has the same most extensive set. But again, just like anarchy is a problem because rights are, unlimited rights are essentially meaningless, in order to to make uh, economic liberty meaningful, the government might have to do a decent chunk of things. But it's the maintenance of a particular kind of political discourse that polices that boundary that is uh, what uh, economic liberals have in common. And this is an important feature of economic liberalism, I think, that, that adds to classic libertarianism, um, which says, okay, we need to have these two checks. As I said earlier, it's a third check. It's essentially a, political, a check on the, the political discourse. And how do you do this? How do you make sure that when people in a democratic society Uh, are debating policy and uh, that arguing over who gets elected and once the elected officials are elected, what policies get implemented, when the government essentially can do anything. It has all the tools of force uh, and it has all the financial resources necessary. Um, Maybe there's a piece of paper somewhere that says here are the rights that the government can't exceed, but how do you make sure that those uh, paper boundaries are adhered to? The discourse, the Dominant values in our political culture. So economic liberals aren't really adding anything new institutionally. They're not adding anything new necessarily in terms of what, it, what does a limited government look like. They are adding that a sort of more robust discussion of what our rights are. To the classic liberals, uh, and they're taking Locke's, uh, you know, notion of property rights, and they're, ex- they're extending it into a now well understood, well developed capitalist uh, system where we can see the pros and cons of capitalism. We can see the benefits of it. We can see the harms that it produces. Um, but they're they're really asking for a essentially a much like Mill, a disposition, and the disposition is this: in our democratic, our liberal democratic society, one we remain committed to exercising individual sovereignty as the primary goal of our society, right? And uh, two, in order to police that limited uh, role of the government, to essentially keep the government within its limited role, that society has to maintain an adherence to, one, liberty as a value, and two, it has to recognize that when we debate questions in the political arena. When we discuss, when we conceive of policies, that there has to be a reference back always to individual rights. Now, I think that one of the things about the United States is that our political culture, our dominant political culture, is so committed to individual liberty, it's so committed to the anti-authoritarian stance that our founders had in regard to uh, to uh, Great Britain, that uh, we do see, our, our primary uh, dominant culture does see the government as a potential threat and we also do see liberty as the primary value, that our political discourse is largely centered around arguing about where the harm principle goes, arguing about uh, what conditions are necessary for uh, free exchange to really take place. We do have socialists and we do have Conservatives with a capital C, and we'll talk about in a couple of weeks what, what those people look like. We have those things, but the dominant discourse is a liberal discourse, liberal with a capital L. And so, uh, socialists aren't in the mainstream of argument. They're actually asking the dominant culture to expand the role of government beyond this limited list. Uh, so, the economic liberals, they're essentially writing to get our dominant culture to stay committed to the values that it is committed to to keep our political discourse the way it's always been, which is, well, we want to keep the role of the government limited. So, uh, and that limited role is all about rights. It's all about rights. So every policy we consider has to always reference back to securing our political and economic rights. We don't get to start adding, well, what would be in the common good? What would be uh, something that we collectively want to work towards? Uh, there's a definite fight against not just totalitarian government power, but against a collectivist mindset, against anything that's aimed towards the common good, right? The liberal perspective on human life is that the conception of the good that people pursue using their instrumental rationality is up to them, right? This is what I've called expressive rationality, the, the way we express ourself by the goals that we pursue, by the conception of the good that we have, by the overall view of what it is I'm here to do, that th- that is the core of uh, humanity. And as soon as the, any kind of conception of the good goes outside of the individual and uh, you know, brings in societal, tribal, familial, Uh, global uh, um, imperatives and conceptions of the good that that are handed to or forced upon the individual, then we're departing from an adherence or an acknowledgement that the individual forming their own conception of the good is the right way for us to organize society and the right way for us to live. So uh, liberals in general are uh, worried about uh, violations of rights, but they're also worried about any kind of collectivist mindset. And I think that the economic liberals themselves are the most concerned about the collectivist mindset. And their critique of totalitarian power and of, like, the slippery slope that gets us there is to to say that as soon as we introduce collectivist notions into our democratic discourse, we're eroding one of those important checks on the boundary of legitimate government action. And we're going to end up in a place where we don't have the individual in the center place in our political thinking anymore. So uh, liberalism requires a number of different limitations and uh, those limitations have to be policed in certain ways. And all liberals, whatever they see those uh, the boundaries or the place of those actual lines, all liberals are concerned about making sure that these boundaries are maintained effectively. It requires a government, It requires internal checks and balances. It requires the exercise of popular sovereignty. And it requires, now adding another thing from the economic liberals, it requires a political discourse that doesn't stray from liberty as the central concern. Now, I will point out that one of the um, critics that's coming of economic liberalism is that essentially what economic liberalism does by focusing us on this particular discourse, uh, or uh, keeping our political discourse focused on rights, is that it attenuates what public life is uh, supposed to be about. Public life is supposed to be not just about debating the boundaries of our rights, but about debating all of the things that concern individuals and the social groups that they belong to. And that it's asking us to attenuate the possible range of political discourse into a small channel. And And the economic liberals, I think, would say, yeah, Exactly. We're asking for a highly attenuated political discourse, because that highly attenuated political discourse is the only way, or I shouldn't say the only way, it's a necessary condition for making sure that the government stays in its limited role. And it's extremely dangerous. And history is strewn with examples of governments that get outside of this role of of protecting individual sovereignty. ending up being tyrannical and sometimes extraordinarily tyrannical. Um, so the economic liberals would address that by saying, yeah, it's, the political discourse is intended to be attenuated. And that kind of disposition, much like the disposition that Mill is asking for here to uh, not only tolerate but appreciate uh, and value eccentricity, uh, this is another disposition. So what, is, what does liberalism really need? Liberalism needs, one a conception of the individual as rational, self-directed, and having uh, the the potential traits that can be cultivated of being able to live a life where you actually make your own decisions, both about the big things, what am I moving towards, and about the little things, how do I move towards that particular thing. It then also requires a government. And the existence of a government requires certain kinds of uh, processes and checks, uh, and it also then requires a disposition that sees the threats to liberty that are not just the government, but all kinds of threats uh, as things that we need to pay attention to. Um, collectivism, conformity, uh, the common good. I mean, some of these things sound like collectivism sounds terrible, common good sounds terrible, uh, or, or, excuse me, uh, conformity sounds terrible, common good sounds pretty you know, benevolent or benign at, at, the, at the least. But uh, I would say that both Mill and the economic liberals are worried about even something like the common good because it, it, it moves us towards a disposition that is potentially problematic to the limited role. Limited government. Capitalism is really, it's potentially a necessary evil, if only because the only alternatives pull us in the collectivist direction. Right? So there are some economic liberals who are like, capitalism is awesome, and there are no problems with it, and anybody who thinks there are problems with it should shut the hell up. But more sophisticated, realistic, economic liberals, and I count all of the readings uh, today as those, acknowledge that capitalism comes with some downsides, but that the only alternative is uh, either directly uh, problematic, you know, a centrally planned social society, or is heading us on a slippery slope to that particular other side. And that capitalism, therefore, even though we can acknowledge that it could, that it potentially is problematic, uh, is a necessary uh, um, bulwark against the loss of liberty. All right, well, I feel like I'm already starting to repeat myself uh, uh, within this lecture and certainly from other ones I've given in the past, so I'm going to just say happy weekend. Uh, It's beautiful and sunny outside. I hope that you guys are able to enjoy uh, your lives and exercise. Your individual sovereignty in ways that advance your conception of the good. All right.